This episode is brought to you by Charcoal Book Club. Each month, Charcoal selects a first edition monograph that's a must-have for every photo book collection. Each book arrives signed by the artist and includes a print, a note card from the guest curator, not to mention free shipping to the US, Canada, and the UK. If you already have the book, you can simply swap it for another one in their shop. One of the reasons that I love being a member of Charcoal is that many of their books of the month are now out of print and really expensive. So it's kind of a way of getting a jump start and making sure that you have some of the great titles they've been putting out. Try it for yourself and join the club at charcoalbookclub.com. This episode is also sponsored by Lightwork, a nonprofit that's been supporting artists working in photography since 1973. Lightwork hosts a world-renowned residency program and exhibitions, offers a community lab facility that's open to the public, and publishes contact sheet. As a very special deal for all listeners, Take 10% off contact sheet subscriptions, sign books, and prints from the Lightwork shop when you use the code MAGICHOUR at checkout. Subscriptions are just $40, sign books are no more than $75, and limited edition prints start at $300. With works by Jason Fulford, Zanelli Mahali, Letha Wilson, Ron Jude, Raymond Meeks, and many more. Support a great cause and begin a renew your subscription today at www.lightwork.org. shop I'm Jordan Weitzman, and you're listening to Magic Hour. I went to go visit Paul and Paggy Sapoya on a cool day this past winter at a studio in the Boyle Heights area of L.A. In one room, test prints, book mock-ups, his desk and a big printer filled the space. In the other, a Russian plywood bench, a big mirror on the wall, a velvet curtain hanging, and a camera on a tripod. He suggested we do the interview in that room, the set where many of his photos have been made, and maybe somehow that setting would provoke more interesting conversation. The items in that room are the elements in his photographs, and they all have significance in relation to his interests in portraiture. But what I found equally as interesting was the economy he used with those props in order to produce varieties of different, complex images. Nothing about his picture-making process is really fancy, but that simplicity allows him to roam around and complicate the frame. In the past few years, Paul's really been on a roll. He's had work in Momo's most recent new photography and is currently in the Whitney Biennial. He's had numerous solo shows, most recently at the Team Gallery in New York. And his photo, Darkroom Mirrors, was featured on the cover of Art Forum's March issue this year. In addition to his practice, he also teaches at CalArts. What's the daily routine? We're in your studio right now. Uh, do you come here every day? Um... I try to. I mean, if I'm, I'm not like a, I'm not like a nighttime studio person, um, but I'm also not a morning studio person. So, I mean, my ideal day is like getting here around noon or one o'clock and staying till like seven or eight. Um, so if there's the morning, I can like get stuff done around the house or run errands or do something like that or go climbing on my on my way here or sometimes I'll just take a break and do some exercise or something um yeah I just try to do you know I'm not doing like a nine to five but trying to get here on the days that I'm not doing teaching stuff or other things is nice just so I so that it's like working hours you know it's like it's my job yeah so I'm not like squeezing stuff in, you know, I mean, I'm, I guess I'm fortunate to not, to not be having to do nighttime studio hours, squeezing around like a full time nine to five or 10 to six, which I had done in the past in 
um, in New York up until like 2011, 2010 or something like that. I guess, and in that case, I was like, if I made it to the studio once every other week or something like that, it was, it was nice. It was like a good thing. So, what were you doing? Anyways, I'm here for the most part. What were you doing then? What was that? What was that nine to five? Oh, I was. Oh gosh, I was like an arts administration. Um. Okay. No. Okay. So I started off working at Creative Capital as a grant. Grants and services, that's what I was doing. And then I left, and then I became a program director at the Joan Mitchell Foundation, also doing grants and services, set it running, setting up several new fellowships and, like, grant programs, following up after, like, Hurricane Katrina and stuff, a lot of focus on Gulf Coast artists, um, working with their, like, MFA grant recipients, and then, like, a program f- mostly focused on older artists and helping... To, to um, both doing research with a small group of test artists and developing um, both programming and services around being able to document, organize, and catalog like an artist's whole lifetime work. Hmm. But sort of in the way it's like starting from the worst case scenario, like being 70 years old and having never done it or relied on other people and having to start from scratch. So anyways, I did that. And then I went back to Creative Capital and did their like, I think, 2010 or 11 grant cycle. Did that kind of work give you um, uh, a certain sense of the, the other part of the artist's job other than the actual making of the work? Oh, yeah. I mean, I learned a lot from that because, yeah, it was actually the best kind of work for me to do. I mean, I tried, I think like many people who like studied photography, like I thought I wanted to be like a, like shooting for magazines and stuff like that is like my actual job mm-hmm. or whatever, you know, like I'm, you know, be a photographer like David LaChapelle or something like that. Mm-hmm. Like it was... 1998. Um, But um, I realized while I was in school and shortly after by like assisting for like editorial and fashion photographers that like I was not cut out for that. So anyways, administrative work, being connected to art and being on the nonprofit side was really great. Um, and seeing, being able to see through supporting and sort of like observing the full kind of like arc of an artist, artist project from sort of like grant proposal through the work either going up in a gallery or in a performance or in a theater, you know, was really great. Um, I guess for two reasons, because one was... This was when I first started in that work. It was before the dot, it was like before and during the whole like kind of like acceleration of everything through the 2008 financial crisis and then the years afterwards. Um, and like coming out of undergrad at that time, it's just like it was so used to seeing like people who had also just come out of undergrad or people from like in grad school, like. You know, that legend of, like, people having solo show, 
having, you know, collectors come to their studios at Columbia and then like buy all the work, you know, mm-hmm. it's like galleries, like Perez projects and, and all these things. But, um, but working in the nonprofit side, as well as sort of seeing the fact that like there were artists whose work I knew, um, that gets critical success and maybe is successful in terms of like the, the parameters that the artist has set out to do is not necessarily the same thing as just like an artist making money mm-hmm. or whatever. So anyways, that was really kind of like helpful and grounding. And then I loved working at the Judd Mitchell foundation. Um, and it was also really helpful for me because I'm such a sort of like administratively organized person and I do all of that for myself. So it just kind of like used it as opportunities to kind of, build the behind the scenes sort of thing that's helped me keep myself organized. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So at that time you were, you were working, you were working at the Joe Mitchell foundations. You were doing our administrative work and you were also, you were making your own work. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm really interested in the evolution of your work. There's, I mean, it's always, your practice has always been, pretty steeped in portraiture but mm-hmm. it's i mean it's um it's changed a lot throughout the years how just out of curiosity i mean how did portraiture become the interest to explore within photography yeah i guess when people ask that i always sort of say that like there's always been people in the work but i think the photographs that I was making as an undergrad, I would not consider portraits. And the first portrait projects I did were kind of like realizing all of the sort of like excuses that I was heaping on in terms of like content or like interesting ideas. Not that any of that stuff was invalid, but I guess the sort of thing that like you're taking all these classes in school and there's like all these sort of like interesting interesting sort of like ideas and thesis that you can just sort of like plop on things. And for me, it was just giving me excuses to make pictures of people, but they weren't portraits. And I got out of school and I realized I was really unsatisfied with um, the type of pictures that I was doing. And so then I kind of had to ask myself the question, well, why am I interested in making pictures of people? So I just had to kind of like get everything out of the way and just sort of start with like, okay, well there's, this is my desire to sort of like get to know people Um, and it provides sort of like a convenient, but kind of complicated tool to do that. So when you start to ask yourself that question of why am I interested in portraiture? The end, I mean, what you came up with is that you wanted it to be this, um, this way of getting to know people in this, I don't know. Yeah. Is that what you... So what happened is I was using a lot of people just sort of like as models and stand-ins, just like you kind of like needed a body to sort of like be this, to be to stand in for something else. You know, it's like I have an idea about like, oh, I want to make a picture that's about the history of representation in painting, or it's about sort of like some sort of like political or social or performative thing, you know, and you just sort of like need to cast someone for a picture. That stuff wasn't... I wanted to make pictures of people, but I wasn't being straightforward in like why I wanted to make pictures of people and who the people needed to be for them to hold my attention, if that makes sense. So I was using the camera as a way of getting to know people. When you say that the the people that you wanted to photograph became very important in order to hold your attention, did certain people bring out a certain type of magic in the results? Well, a complete stranger could do that. 
but that's not necessarily interesting. I guess what it is is like, um, hmm. Well, I mean, like every image kind of is in response to a whole other set of images, and a, you know, I'm not just like literally using mirrors in my work currently, but like every, in a certain sense, every portrait mirrors another portrait. Um, but I don't know what someone who's just coming to my work for the first time will see when they see a portrait. Right. You know, I had like three portraits. I wanted three straightforward portraits in my thesis show at UCLA 2016. And I picked specifically three people who had whose images and their presences were already circulating within a particular set of social networks in Los Angeles so that the images could tap into something. It was a completely clothed figure, right? But this someone remarked that like it reminded them of like the posture of someone on the cover of Honcho magazine or something. And I was like, well, that's perfect, right? Because it's like, in a certain sense, there's a type of whole gay, homoerotic, whatever, or pop visual culture that like, also, everything is tapping into. So it's like one thing might stand out to me because it might, the portrait of Evan might tap into like a portrait of like Abby from like four years prior, but also both of those might reflect a type of like posturing where both I'm recognizing and they're pulling from a type of like <clears throat> seduction that we know how to do in front of a camera. Right. Or something right so it's like this this idea that everything is in conversation and yeah every, and and you're all and you have this kind of web of links which are in your head i think that's a really interesting thing because i i really had um no idea that you see your work that way i mean mm -hmm. as a viewer looking at the pictures i always kind of see them as these uh single entities living mm -hmm. within this you know this paul sapoya world or universe so the portraits has you know, let's just say those officially started in 2005 and continue in 2007 or not to nine or so, like the introduction of sort of like the use of, of sort of like queer modernist texts sort of comes in and that kind of continues. 2010 is where the space of the studio comes in as a place that can sort of like hold multiple instances of things. And this is what I was talking about where like the mirroring is not just like holding something in reference to like, oh, I know I'm a part of this project. Let me put that persona on. But like literally we are surrounded by those, by those things. So from 2011, 2014, I was out, not, I wasn't in a studio. Mm -hmm. So we're just sidestepping that. So we're coming back into the studio. That's where both, the formal structures of like of this queer modernism that I was interested in and hold multiple tenses of things at the same time and the portraits all came together through the surface of the mirror being the surface of the mirror being the place where that reworking would happen. Um, so it's sort of like that thing where you know, you're making music and you're, you start adding another layer to the whole thing and suddenly you might not be able to pull them apart, but mm -hmm. they're still distinct kind of like tracks and distinct moments in which they're like intersecting. I'm Jordan Weitzman and you're listening to my conversation with Paul and Peggy Sapoya that we recorded at a studio in the Boyle Heights area of LA. 
To see some visuals of the things that we're talking about in this episode and to see some more of Paul's work, follow us on Instagram at Magic Hour Podcast. I just want to, I want to loop back to something that you were just talking about in terms of your work being uh, more, when it starts to become more recognized through kind of zine culture, like when it started to get out there and people started to, people that you were photographing mm-hmm. started to recognize that work more. That was a positive thing? Like it just be like it becomes material to have to work with. Like if if images are being distributed and that causes, I mean, Friendster is starting, Club Butt, Butt Mag, mm-hmm. yeah, um, Manhunt. I mean, it's just like the ways in which everyone uses images. The thing that the project became was actually what does the making of this work do? What is just the production of portraiture in this at that time and place like? do in that particularly kind of like overtly homoerotic space doing um yeah i started to think about it consciously you know and like how to use the those methods of distribution to kind of like ask some of the questions i'm reminded of something that i heard about diane arbus Uh which is that she didn't like showing work she didn't want her subjects to see her work because she felt if they did, then they would act differently. So I guess I was just curious about how you felt about that in terms of like when someone knows your work and they know what a picture of yours looks like, does that change the way in which they act for the, you know, you know, for better or for worse? Yeah, I mean, that's probably really smart of her. (laughs) Um, But then I wonder, I guess... I always wonder how she had like access to so many different kinds of people, like you know everything from random people on the street to like going to a carnival to like some rich people's back lawn in like the Hamptons to like you know commissioned shoots um I mean, if we think about like uh she this series she just set up like a reflector against a white stucco wall here in LA and photographed like Katie Grannon. Katie Grannon. Yes. Katie Grannon. It's Katie Grannon's photographs. And I like, you know, okay. So it's, if you're cap, if you're photographing people who are just, who are, let's say transient, who are moving from point A to point B and you intersect with their life for one moment and make an image, but like all of her images, you know, that's like a Katie Grannon image. Right. And like everyone looks, haggard and both beautiful but also really sad and whatever it's like are they acting that way because she's well known and her work gets shown it's like no she just is editing right and Mm -hmm. she's like creating a circumstance where that's going to happen but like if you were someone who was like an art going like student or let's say like some you know or a Someone who follows art and you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
knew that there was going to be a Katie Grannon shoot, you would probably know what you were going to get. And maybe you would be ready for like a, you're like a beautifully saturated kind of like harsh, you know, revealing every wrinkle and scar portrait. And maybe you'd play it up. I don't know. But like, I wonder, I guess I'm a little, I'm both like, I totally understand what Dion Arbus is talking about, but I'm, I don't, I'm completely skeptical of that paranoia when it comes to photographing people you inter whose life you intersect with once mm-hmm. on the street. But if like she had to get access to, let's say a carnival and, or, I mean, well, no, cause that's always, people are always performing or like when she goes to photograph, like the gentle giant, the tallest man in the world, like, was he given information on like who she was? And I don't mm-hmm. know. It's like, that's an interesting, well, you know, it's funny that you bring up that picture because that's an interesting picture to, to, um, to discuss in, in this situation because when I think of it, we're talking about, the, you're talking about the, the, the gentle giant. Like the, in, it's in, in his, his living, living room, room, yeah. And he's too tall for the living room. Mm-hmm. I mean, I almost think that that picture is the epitome of an Arbus picture that, um, that demonstrates her actual prowess as a photographer mm-hmm. um, which transcends transcends her subject matter which is people are always so focused on her subject matter and the the nature of who the people are and the the, the politics mm-hmm. of who those people are in relation to who she is which is a really interesting discussion but what makes Arbus such an amazing photographer is it's in that it's in how she photographs them mm-hmm. I mean I'm, I feel and in that picture, it almost doesn't matter mm-hmm. whether that person knows, you know, knows the Arbus picture, doesn't know, doesn't know her pictures, or she's mm-hmm. doing something. Like she's she's doing something. Yeah, it's like it, it, that. That picture is all about the relation to him in the room and to his parents who are sitting there. Mm-hmm. But which also, is kind of what makes it. I mean, there's all the stuff that we before we even get to the subject. That's like we know it like an Arbus picture, right? So it's like she's not switching up a ton of different cameras. We know the format that she's using, the square format. You know, she's shooting in black and white. Like she has certain sets of composition and things that she's doing. And also when you look at her contact sheets, for a lot of those iconic images, you see how much of it is in editing. Right. That like... Editing is what makes an artist's work. You know, it's sort of like setting up the parameters is what makes the artist's work distinct. I think there has to be a certain set of like empathy and um, and being able to sort of like respond to people to make to make successful work that isn't going to be sort of like intrusive or kind of like you know producing something uncomfortable for the subject. But I think a lot of it, of what makes Arbus's work Arbus is, is that you have to keep shooting. I mean, for any photographers, like you have to keep shooting and then you have to like, every time you edit again, it's like you're editing based on what came before it and thinking about what's going to come after. There's going to be slight changes, but anyways, but also it's like what that question is um, kind of like, maybe the other part of that is like the fantasy of the, person being photographed 
also, which is something that like, and the, and then like of the viewers' participation in that, like, there's this essay that Kevin Killian writes about Carl Van Vechten for this book called like Artists' Portraits of Other Artists or whatever, and he talks about like sort of this fantasy of like whether or not he would have been, you know, he was he missed it by generations, but like would he have would he have been selected? Would he have been sort of like interesting enough? He was surely not black enough, like to be part of, you know, this sort of like famous set of images. Um, but I think my work plays with that a lot also, because one of the things that I've done since the very first project, like I was interested in um, the sort of like this, this, the spaces of meeting where like, where everything would result was never set. Right. So it was kind of like, and especially in these queer spaces, it's like, okay, like this could be a collaborator. This could be a lover. This could be a platonic friendship. This could be like a tumultuous relationship that ends up in a friendship. So I basically put um, sexuality or the performance of that and desire as like the starting, as the level point for all images. Um, And then sort of the criteria of the, people in the work because it doesn't encompass all of my friendships but it's like those people who kind of like play with that space in some ways um that kind of like leaves the question of like what is the setup for the event that happens off camera what is just the setup for the camera can i just ask you about something you just that you just Mm -hmm. mentioned um you you just talked about desire being being a starting point or an entry point into making a picture. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by that? Like when I was talking about that kind of like space where things remain indeterminate, regardless of where they settle, is that like acknowledging that like desire, whether or not it is a curiosity or it is tied to sexuality or whatever, is it? active component in the maintaining of friendships and of social spaces. And this might not be universal, but it's something that I'm interested in, like within my, you know, where I am. Yeah. But then again, you know, it's like, and that's one time kind of like playing around with it because I tend to kind of in sort of like presenting equal playing field as that starting point, um, does it, let's say, like, put a portrait of uh, images with a partner or my boyfriend equally with another friend? You know, it's like, what does it do to these, what does it do to these relationships? Like, what do the resulting images sort of like, and I don't know, you know, it's like an interesting question. There's always the thing that's intended and there's the the thing that's not intended. That thing that... Uh, may not be intended that just kind of comes out from actually taking pictures, taking a lot of pictures and just kind of working within a situation. Mm-hmm. Is that something that excites you or that you're really interested in, in, in the whole process? Um, I think it's the stuff that you have to deal with, mm-hmm. you know, like when you were asking about if the publication was a positive or negative thing, it's just, it's just something to deal with and you can either deal with things and try to like, work with them and ask questions about it or you can try to like suppress them or set them aside and it's just kind of like there's the stuff that I'm 
may have intended to directly do. And then there's the stuff that I didn't, but it's still there. Mm-hmm. And it's fine to not have the answers to it. I think it's the work gets figured out through making of work and then the making new work that responds to the previous things rather than I don't sit, I, I couldn't imagine being an artist who sits down and writes a thesis or like an essay and then just like makes images to illustrate them or something like that. As if like every like loose end had to be tied up and like, this is exactly what this means. And this is exactly what it's doing. It's like, yeah. you can't really do anything productive if like your aim is hitting the target. Right. And every like, and every process of that is always moving the target or the target changes shape or something like that. So um, the important thing to remember is that work comes out of work and you just got to, mm-hmm. yeah. I'm just yeah. curious. I'm, I'm curious. We're in the, we're in the, um, in your studio now. And, uh, we were talking before about how you try and come here every day, you know, like it's a, a job. Yeah. Maybe not a nine to five, but it's like, you know, you come every day. How important right. is it to you to, to actually keep the pic? Like, how often do you like to be shooting and keeping the pictures going versus the other stuff? Oh, gosh. I don't really do much in the winter because it's cold. <laughs> um, no, I mean, it's it's hard when, like, there's teaching jobs or something going on. I'm not here very much. Um I think there's an idea that people think that I'm just like photographing all the time. Like <laughs> 90% of the time I'm here by myself, just like, you know, it's like no one sees all of the thousands of like outtakes and stuff that, you know, kind of gets thrown out on the way to, to making things that I, that I'm sort of happy with. Um, yeah. So I'm, there's, I mean, there's, a, I think, a lot to be said for just sort of, like, being bored in a space and just, like, looking or something. A lot of new ideas just come from, you know, moving from spot to spot and taking a look and, like, catching something and then thinking, oh, that's, like, an interesting way to construct something and then I'll make a little test study and then I'll think about it. Um, and then... Maybe just like informally, maybe we're just like at a party or something like that. And we're just talking about like art. And then it's like, oh, okay, there's this idea. Okay, let's like figure out the next week like to do something. And then maybe I'll do a shoot. Maybe that's something. Maybe like I have like two weeks in May between when the semester ended and I had to go to another teaching job Mm -hmm. um, upstate New York. And I just was like, okay. Hey friends, let's, if you're free, let's come by and let's just like figure out some new stuff and like play around and like try out things. And then, you know, I'm still editing. So there's just different rhythms of thing. There's not like, okay, it's like Thursday. Yeah. There's so much other stuff to do. Yeah. Yeah. And then I'm always like surprised at like how confusing people think the pictures are, the the mirror images because uh-huh. again those are they're so very simple and very straightforward and there's no tricks or post-production editing or things going on so yeah that's why i kind of set this up yeah we're sitting in right in front of a mirror right now to the mm-hmm. right in back of you is a, a velvet drape which is um hung on a couple of tripods yeah, just like a little back backdrop stand, a little mobile backdrop stand. 
Yeah, it's pretty simple. I mean, I have this one. I got a grant last last year. Yeah. No, wait, twenty. Oh my god, it's two thousand nineteen. Two thousand two years ago now. Mm-hmm. I got a, a grant for the first time and got this. Finally, got like a new digital camera. Mm-hmm. This Sony. Is that a Sony? Wait, no, Canon. It's a Canon. See, I don't even know what I, I really don't like fussing around with like technology and stuff. I don't really use the Canon for handheld images. It's too, it, it's the camera itself is too large. It tends to dominate the images. So I, I use it for another type of images. The ones that are, that tend to be on tripods mm-hmm. or at a larger scale for the smaller works I use the handheld Lumix just because it's nicer and lighter and everything. It's quite nice. It's funny that you say you don't fuss about this stuff that much because I mean, I mean, I I relate to that kind of not um, getting too fussy over technology kind of point, but there is such a specificity in your pictures. The reason why I'm particular about these two cameras is because I don't want to have to be thinking about what camera I'm going to use. What lens am I going to use? How is it going to be set up? Like I want, I want there to be clear parameters from where I'm starting off so that within the frame, within a more focused area, more um, type, I can get, I can go deeper exploring that stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, because some photographers, which can be fine for other people, it's like, is the thing that makes the work interesting, like the angle that they're shooting or the, the, the length or the depth of the lens or a type of like process they're applying to the image or a co- like I'm not, it's just like the image is either black and white or in color. I'm not doing anything to that. It's with the image on the tripod, you know, it's, I guess what I'm saying is like there's the, the parameters are, are set um, so that, the portrait itself or the figure itself or the combination of things happening within it are the the questions I can kind of like start to ask and figure out. Um, I don't believe you should spend more than like five minutes tops on a picture. Like afterwards. Uh Uh-huh. Oh, like 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 when you've scanned. Yeah. Like I don't do anything like that. You know, having to like figure out like different calibrations for different cameras and all this stuff. It's like, I don't want to waste my time doing that. Mm -hmm. Okay, final question. I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about the role that gesture plays in your work. Oh, gesture. Um, Yeah, I mean, you can't not think of, I mean, like, we're we are Western people living in the West living in, you know, it's like we're, our visual language is built off of like, of like Christian imagery. Right. And that's like all gesture. And we think, and when we think about like, you know, and then we think about like dance and performance and, and whatever. And there's all these sorts of things. So like, there's so much one could choose from. I'm not using gesture in a, in a way of meaning in a sense of like, if you think about what specifically the outstretched hand of Christ means, or when you think about 
the gesture of um, someone's hand on the globe in, you know, a Holbein painting or something like that, or like the way that those that they're sort of like coded. I'm not I'm not make you know like that. Um, and in a sense, it's purely visual. There's a thing, you know. It's also it's like so. There's the gestures are either holding or operating a camera, steadying a tripod, um, holding a, uh, uh, fragments or scraps of paper against a mirror's surface or taking them off. So each of them has to be, is doing something, but because they are, for them, the works that are made within this reflection of the mirror, they are also being observed. They become aestheticized. And then they are, I think, just, they take on the character of all of these, the way we think of, like, or the, I mean, let's say the way I think of, like, oh, I'm holding it, oh, maybe I don't want to hold it so, like, ham-fisted. Let me, like, let me put use the pressure on the tripod with my fingers so that like it ends up looking different, you know, like, so I'm adjusting things aesthetically. There's not some specific kind of like allegorical meaning in gesture. Um, but in a sense, they're all doing a thing. Um, and you can tell, I mean, and I wonder if like a, someone who's not a photographer would tell if a gesture in relation to a camera were superfluous or silly. Like I can't get away with that. You know, um, in a certain sense, it's like I wouldn't know if the tripod were turned in the wrong way or a photographer would pick something like that out. Um, so, yeah, when the hands are visible, they're doing something and they need to be doing that thing. So you're seeing the thing being done, but then they, that thing can be aestheticized in a way that like, let's say you're in a performance, the the performer has to get from A to B or pick up and move this thing, but then there's a certain sense of choreography for it because there is the viewership built into it. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like more in that sense. Um, but um, yeah, people have asked like, oh, do you have a background? Like thinking about like dance and stuff like that. And it's just kind of like, I saw a lot. Of, I love, I don't see as much now that I don't live in New York, you know, but like, yeah, maybe I'm thinking about like dance and some, mm. in some things too, but yeah well thanks a lot for having yeah. me yeah you're welcome thanks for coming it. by yeah that was my conversation with Paul and Peggy Sapoya that we recorded at a studio in the Boyle Heights area of LA this episode was produced by me Jordan Weitzman and was edited by Sarah Anna McMahon Sperber original music in this episode by Adam Feingold to find out more about the show visit us at magichourpodcast.org and follow us on Instagram at magichourpodcast. Thanks for tuning in and see you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.